only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Please turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. I'll be reading verse 12 through 21. And if you're reading from a blue pew Bible, this can be found on page 942. Romans 5, beginning at verse 12. Let's hear the word of the Lord our God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign and alive through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more, so that, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Good news, the word of the Lord. You notice our title. And by the way, it's Romans 5, not 15, if that's your study. You should have a a study sheet um, that has our outline. Uh, I'll be going through that. Hopefully that will keep you clear of where we are. Uh, One of the reasons I've done this is because this is a passage in which uh, there's a lot of repetition. You may have noticed that. Uh, There's this constant comparison of Adam and Christ, 
not always called Adam in Christ, but the one man uh, and the other man. Um, and so because that constant repetition, if, you, if you're like me and you read through it, it seems to get confusing a, a little bit and trying to pull the threads apart. And so what I've tried to do is to state some uh, basic truths that are found in this uh, scripture and pull those out and underscore them for our benefit. Just a little bit about the way Paul uh, goes through here, his structure. Verse 12 begins with just like Adam, okay, but he never finishes it. And every commentator uh, agrees with this. He doesn't finish that first just like Adam, so also Christ. But he digresses in verses 13 and 14 to explain the fact that sin was in the world even without the law. Then, verses 15 through 17, it's as though he says, and let me, before I continue talking about Adam and Christ, let me just underscore the difference between them. In other words, he wants to make sure we understand, though he's comparing them, they had diametrically opposed uh, results, okay? So you can compare them and you can say both of them did something similar, but those are very different things. So verses 15 through 17 is where you get, but the free gift is not like the trespass. Verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin, okay? So he starts off like Adam, and you think he's going to say like Christ. He says, Oh, and by the way, during that time, without the law, sin was still raging. And before I go on, let me say, they're not the same. And then finally, in verse 18, he begins to finish like Christ, uh, like Adam, so Christ. And he does that in verses 18 and 19. And then again, in verse 20, he brings in the law. Now, it's interesting when he's talking about these major categories of Adam and Christ, and he's putting all people in those two categories, he still keeps coming back to the law. You see what a critical thing the law is in Jewish thinking. And as we're going to see, his statement when he says the law came in to increase trespass was a shocking statement to a Jew or to probably a Jewish Christian. Because the law was thought to be part of God's salvation, part of God's rescue. And Paul puts the law over here with sin and death in its final effect. And that shows just how desperate the situation really is because of our sin. So that gives you a little bit of a feel for the flow of thought. And another reason why you get five different times, Adam, Christ, Adam, Christ, Adam, Christ. And, uh, So let's dig in and let's uh, see if we can pull out some major teaching here uh, that Paul is setting before. Certainly, this number one thing is right on the surface of things. Two men, Adam and Christ, control the destinies of every human being, of all human beings. This is his primary point here. Uh, Getting to, he, he does that so that he can show the superiority of Christ over what happened in Adam, to show the superiority of grace over the death that has pervaded this world. So everybody is plunged into the death of Adam, but grace through Christ has entered to create a new humanity. And so, in a sense, it's like there are two races, two families, two peoples, 
the old humanity and the new humanity, two kingdoms, two worlds, two ages, almost two creations. The old creation in which we are trapped in the dungeon of death and sin and condemnation. Or we've become, in, we've, we've come into Christ and we're a part of this new world of grace and life and righteousness justification. And Paul is saying everybody is plunged into one of those two worlds. You're either part of the old creation and the new humanity, condemned and in death and sin, or you've been transferred out of that world into the new creation that will finally issue into the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. This old world in Adam is destined for condemnation and death and destruction. This new world that has entered into, and it, in a way, if you could draw the two worlds, there'd be a circle where we're all living, you know, in this same earth. But in the end, those circles are going to be divided in a terrible way, in a wonderful way. And one is, enters into everlasting life and the other into everlasting death. And so this... As he says several times here, this first transgression, as we talked about it last, last week, this first transgression of, of Adam has this productive force and it is spread like a contagion, like a disease throughout the whole of mankind. And so the words like death and died are six times and sin and transgression and trespass some 12 to 13 times. Uh, in this passage to speak of the horror of this, uh, what we are in, 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 in Adam. And so he is basically, I love how Barrett puts this, Christ is basically retrieving the cosmic situation. See, the world cosmic situation is the whole world is plunged into death and sin and condemnation and final judgment. Christ enters in and recreates this world, and there's a new creation with a new destiny and a creation that has been resurrected from death to life, and that is what we have entered into. And so he, he retrieves this cosmic situation. And when you see the words all on one side and all on the other, many on the one side, many on the other, it's not saying they're the same groups at all. It's just saying the effects of... Christ's work on those that are his are more powerful than the effects of Adam's work on those who are his. And the thing we want to say right at the outset is that we belong to one or the other. We're all born in Adam. And the question is, are we going to be in Christ or not? We are in Adam. We're plunged into death by virtue of being human beings. Will we be in Christ now, I'm going to jump to the end of the passage to talk about the law, as he says in verse 20. The law came in, he says, and the word there almost has the feeling of slipped in. It came in alongside. But you would think it would come in to maybe neutralize sin, to help alleviate sin, to help deliver from sin. Uh, Israel thought that the, the law was part of it. The way it was going to be saved is through law. And so this word would be very harsh to uh, a Jewish ear or a Jewish Christian ear. 
They would attribute basically a, salve, uh, a, sal, a saving, sorry, meaning to the law. But Paul says, no, far from that, the law came in and it actually increased sin. And so the law doing that, if that which is holy and pure and good, which Paul describes it in Romans 7, if that which is holy, pure, and good comes on the scene and our sin is so bad that when we come near to that which is holy and good, our sin is aggravated and increases, then you're in a hopeless situation. Imagine this raging virus in your body and every medicine you tried to apply to the person made the virus grow stronger. Think, well, it's all this disease... Even when you give medicine to the person, even even when you try everything we know, it just feeds off of that and it gets worse. And that's what he's saying, that human sin is so bad that when something good and holy that perfectly reflects the character of God, which the law does. It's like a drawing near of God's holiness and goodness. And it shows all the more when it draws near our contrast with God. Because when God drew near through the word, the law and revealed His holiness, uh, it showed all the more the sinfulness of man. Later in chapter 7, Paul says this in verse 13, Did that which is good, that is the law, then bring death to me? No, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So that when the specifics of the law are revealed, especially in Israel, then it makes sin to be a conscious public hatred against God. Specifically, you see. It shows that it is a rebellion against the detailed will of God. It's not that we heard the law and thought, oh, if that's the law, then we must give ourselves to it. No, we rebel all the more against it. And so it actualizes sin. It it makes sin even more radical and shows the crisis of the sinfulness that we have. And so the law has no power to alter the situation. It doesn't doesn't bring in a new age or a uh, a new world. It just comes alongside and sin increases because of the law. So the law is not uh, the source of life. It, in fact, informs and accuses, and it becomes a factor that all the more condemns us. And actually, in this passage, when it talks about where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, we have to bear in mind that the particular place where sin increased was Israel itself, because that's where the law was revealed. And Cranfield and others think that this passage, Paul is reflecting upon the final manifestation of sin in the Jewish nation when even Christ himself was crucified. Talk about sin increasing. In the place where the law existed in the world, that's where mankind manifested itself in its worst colors by putting to death the Son of God. And it's not as though, well, we would have done better. We wouldn't have been. No, they just represented humanity. 
They just represented the human heart. And what happens to the human heart, even in the face of the law of God? But it was right at that point, right at that point where sin increased, that grace abounded all the more. Because right at the point of the display of the worst of human sin, God was bringing about the greatest work of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. It's astounding. Right at the darkest point of human history, at that point of the manifestation of how evil we were, God was saving us in His Son. The very action against His Son, He was using to rescue us. So where sin, where sin reigned in death and sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So, what does this mean for you and for me? This situation that we are in Adam and the situation that even when the law, even when God's character is manifested toward us, it just makes us sin all the more. It manifests our sin all the more. It means that even though we may belong to the nicest family in the world, even though we may be in part of a great nation, even though we may be good citizens, etc., we all have to realize spiritually, I am born in Adam and I belong to, to Adam. I belong to this realm. And the only hope for me is that I would belong to Jesus Christ. Even trying to do the right thing by just obeying certain rules and, and seeing the law of God and say, I'm going to keep that law. As we even confessed this morning, I will, it will only increase my sin. It will only manifest how far I am, how evil my heart really is. And this is so important as you think about all the people that you meet in this world. Nobody's neutral in this world. Nobody has a neutral destiny in this world. Every person you meet is either in Adam or in Christ. And, so, and, the, and the situation is desperate. We proclaim Christ. We're the only hope for the world. We're their only escape through the gospel of Jesus Christ from sin and death and condemnation. We are the rescuers. Do you, do you see? you imagine being sent to Haiti right after the earthquake and we're being sent there to uh, pull off rock to try to find people? And we're at the airport and we're playing cards and playing video games. But we were sent there at the expense of great, uh, a lot of expense to rescue people. Well, dear friends, that's what we are here for. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. That you might live before them and they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Because people are in Adam. People are under condemnation and death. And there is no escape except through Christ. Well, one of the things that this passage points out is that everything comes to us through Christ and in Christ. Notice in verse 15, it speaks of the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. 
So the grace of God and then how that grace is really expressed through Jesus Christ. And notice when it says in verse 17 that we will reign in life, we who receive the abundance of grace, we will reign in life through Jesus Christ and only through Jesus Christ. And at the end in verse 21, he speaks of grace reigning through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is nothing that we have that doesn't come through Him. It speaks of His action for us as well. When it says, verse 16, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. And it talks about the action of Christ in verse 15, uh, when He talks about the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. So, uh, verse uh I'm sorry, verse 18 says, One act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. And so it is His action and His grace and His union with us, and everything comes through this Lord Jesus Christ and His obedience. He's the sole instrument of the divine love. And there's no comparison when you think about it. Adam was just a simple human being whose one evil act had a had terrible repercussions on this world. But behind Christ stands the overpowering grace of God. Christ is God in action, God's generosity, and God's power. Calvin said, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to ruin. It's interesting also, if you talk about grace and Christ, how often... They're associated in Scripture. It is Jesus Christ particularly with which grace is associated in Scripture. You can do a word study, and, and it's, it's very encouraging. Even the phrase that is used at the beginning of many of Paul's, uh, many of Paul's letters, it says, "...grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ." And then the other version is when it says the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But many times he simply says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you over and over in Scripture. The grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God be with you. Or think of this great passage in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. It speaks of the grace of the Lord Jesus. Or, or, or 1 Timothy 1.14, The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Or Peter says in chapter 1, he speaks of the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so throughout Scripture, a constant talking of Christ and grace. Even when it speaks in Ephesians 2 of how God will show the immeasurable riches of His grace in eternity, He says He will do it in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Always connected with Christ Jesus. And so this, this grace is ours through Christ. And Fourthly, then to enlarge on this grace, this grace is abundant and it's certain. 
Notice in verse 15 and verse uh, 17, it has that little phrase, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace. And the same thing in verse 17. If death reign, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace reign in life. That goes back to verses 9 and 10 where we see those two phrases, much more. And as several commentators point out, it means that it's certain. You think death is certain. It says, much more is grace certain through Christ Jesus. You can count on that grace. You can depend your whole life on that grace. Death seems to be the most certain thing in the world. But no, Paul says, much more is grace certain for those who receive Jesus Christ. And notice the the words he uses in verse 15. He simply says, many died, but then he says, the gift of grace and the grace of God have abounded. He just simply says, many died. But grace from God and the gift of grace in Christ abound, richly overflow to us to to overwhelm whatever death had, to overwhelm sin, to overwhelm condemnation and judgment. Grace comes and completely wipes out our enemies and completely draws us in and makes certain that we will receive God's goodness forever. The same thing in verse 17. Death reigned through one man, but now there is an abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, and we will reign in life. We'll look a little bit more at that that reign. So this abundance of grace, it conquers and and rescues. He, He gives what one commentator calls an extravagant expression of superiority to grace. So grace lays hold of us and rescues us and nothing can stop that sovereign hand of God. And so you need to see grace is not just God's disposition toward us. It does speak of that. It speaks of His favor. But grace always speaks of His power toward us. Because if He has a good disposition toward us, a favor, it means nothing unless He has all power. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who manifest His sovereign grace toward us. A grace that cannot be stopped. A grace that will lay hold of its object. And a grace that will deliver it to the full abundance of salvation. And so we can rest and delight in a grace that will save us. And if, if, if you, as you look at your own life and you think of the certainty of your sin, you think of the certain of the, certainty of the habits of your sin, You think of the guilt of your life and the brokenness of your life. This passage means those things are nothing in the wake of the overwhelming grace of God that will bring about forgiveness, bring about reconciliation and fellowship with God, will bring about the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in your life and a transformation of your life. Grace overwhelms death and judgment. And it makes it certain. It is certain that we will reign in that final day. It is certain that we will be made kings and queens. Fifthly, notice, righteousness is the foundation of our new life. It's spoken of grace, another uh, critical word used many times here, either the word justification or righteous or righteousness. 
And all of these have to do with the new status that we have before God. The status of favor, the status of acceptance, the status of being a part of the people of God, being His accepted ones through the work of Jesus Christ. And notice again how He expresses it. In verse 16, He talks about the fact that as a result of one man's sin, there was judgment and condemnation. And as several have pointed out, you would expect then when he says, following many transgressions, there was really judgment. Okay? So, one transgression, judgment and condemnation. Then the transgressions and sins of the whole world. And you'd think, oh now, really, judgment's going to fall. He's making a point. In In the face of the whole history of mankind's sin... Not judgment, not judgment, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Shocking miracle of miracles, utterly beyond human comprehension, that the guilt and accumulated sins of all the ages would be answered by God's gift. That's the point of righteousness. And notice it's the foundation for our life. Because he talks about justification and life in verse 18. It leads to justification and life. So the basis of our new life, the basis of our new relationship is the fact that we've been justified. We've been declared righteous. There is acceptance with us, with God. And so the same thing in verse 21. We reign through this righteousness and that leads to eternal life. Life has its foundation upon this this acceptance that we have with God through Jesus Christ. And that sustains us. That sustains our relationship with Him because it is through our Lord Jesus Christ. But then the final thing I want to talk about is our reigning in life is the final result. Our reigning in life. And I'd like to zero in on uh, especially verse 17. Now this is against the backdrop of several statements about the reign of death. Verse 14, death reigned. Verse uh, 17, death reigned. And verse 21, sin reigned in death. And so death established its reign as this tyrannical power. You could say that we fell under the lordship of death and sin. We were slaves, subjects to this place. Death had a dominion area. It was humanity. And so there was this firmly established order of death and and a rule. And it was so established that there was no possibility of resistance. Imagine a cell in the deepest, darkest part of the castle. And there's not even a door in this cell. All the bars have just been welded into the Walls, and then you're lying there in chains. That's the picture of humanity as, as death reigns over us. We are subjects to that death and we are its helpless victims. So that's the picture of mankind, helpless under the reign of death. But notice what he says in verse 17. He doesn't say that as death reigned through that one man, now life will reign 
through the other man. He doesn't say that. And that we would change from being subjects of death, now we're the subjects in life. Oh, it's more glorious than that. We were subjects of death, and now he makes us the kings in life. That's the contrast. And so, as death was our king and we were slaves under its tyranny, we're not just exchanging the kingdom of death for a kingdom of life, but he delivers us from the rule of death so radically as to enable us to change places with death and to rule over it, to rule in life. And in life gives the, the mode or nature of our life this new, inexhaustible, victorious vitality that we have in Christ to make us kings. And so in our justification, we realize that we've begun to enter this new life of rule that will finally issue in the true lordship of the new creation. That's the final manifestation of it, the new creation. We will share Christ's risen life. We will share His royal glory forever. This was spoken of in the Old Testament in Daniel, speaking about the people of God and how they would enter into a kingdom and all dominions would serve them. Jesus said to His disciples in Luke 12, It's your Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6.2, Paul says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That they will judge angels? You start scratching your head and say, what? We're going to participate in the judgment of the world? That's impossible. I was shocked years ago in studying Revelation that when it says that he will smash the nations uh, in like a piece of pottery, that that thing that is said in the Old Testament is now applied to the saints in Revelation. And then you... You're in a realm that you, you can't, you, you think it's almost blasphemous, really, that we would participate in the rain like that. But Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. It says in Revelation 5, they shall reign on the earth. It says in Revelation 22, they will reign forever and ever. And so in the end, it's a full human entrance into the lordship of the universe. I love how Godet puts it. Death reigns, it's a tyrant. But life does not reign, it does not have subjects, it makes kings. <laughs> That's what life does. It makes kings. And so Christ has overcome and set in reverse this whole destructive history of sin. And he's brought a whole new world to bear a world that will finally issue into the reign of the saints. And so the shocking statement in Romans eight seventeen: if we're children of God, we're heirs, like all children are heirs of their parents. He says, if we're children of God, we're heirs, heirs of God. And here it is, fellow heirs with Christ. I don't know how the Lord Jesus can do that. I really don't. I don't know how he can accomplish and win the kingdom. And we who are guilty and sinful and rebellious and were participating in his own death and would have participated in his own death. 
He then shares with us this kingdom. And he says, what I have earned, I want you to have. And we're said to be co-heirs with Christ. And so we will join in some way, in some glorious way, with His reign, His judgment upon the world. We're that joined to Christ. We're that safe in Christ. It's that certain that we are His. But brothers and sisters, that's the final culmination, but it begins now. In fact, justification has with it that ultimate meaning in a sense. If we've been justified, if we've been made right with God, if we're human beings restored to fellowship with God, then we're kings restored to God. It's inevitable that restored kings will rule by God's grace. But your kingship is to manifest itself, and we get to this in the next chapter, in verse uh, Verse 14 of the next chapter says, Sin will not have dominion over you. And he says, Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. See, there's, a, there's an implication. Kings and queens have been set free to be like Jesus. To begin to rule in this life. Rule over what? To rule over their own lives in a sense to begin to put their lives in the hands of Christ and God. And that's why he says in that next chapter, don't let sin reign. Put your life, dedicate it as a sacrifice up to God. Let your life belong completely to Him because you've been set free from your former master, from your former former dungeon. You've been taken from that dungeon and you even now have been put on a throne. But particularly, it's a throne of holiness and goodness and kindness and love. You have a new self and you can walk in a new life. And so, contemplate this. You've received, those who've received the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. Through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we praise you for the abundant grace that is ours in Christ, for the new righteous standing that is ours in Christ, for the relationship we have with you, Lord Jesus that we belong to you and that we're in you and that you convey to us, you mediate to us all of the salvation of God. We thank you that you've acted on our behalf. We praise you, O God, at the point of greatest human wickedness, you were saving and reconciling the world to yourself, that where sin increased, grace abounded even more. No, Lord, we think of this world in such desperate need of life. This world racked by death and sin and hatred and war, and the breakdown of every relationship. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would show forth, even in this world, how much greater the grace of Christ is than the sin of Adam. 
We pray, Lord, for multitudes that no man can number. For all the nations, as the psalmist prayed, that they will come and worship before you. We pray, O Lord, that we will be a part of that. That we will be convinced of the greatness of your grace. Your willingness to rescue people. Your great accomplishment and the power of that gospel as Paul talks about it in chapter 1. The power of the gospel for those who believe. Oh Lord, may we believe in the greatness of this grace in Christ and be faithful, wise, yes, but faithful and true in calling others to Christ, in sending people into this world, in being used in your hand, Lord, to draw many hundreds, even thousands to Jesus Christ, even through this body. Oh Lord, bless us with a conviction of the greatness of the grace of Christ. For we ask it in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?